Good morning, everybody. If you're new here, my name's Alex. I'm a pastor here at First Church. We want to welcome you. Uh, we are diving into our second week of our study uh, on Paul's letter to Titus. Last week, Mike gave a good kind of overview and introduction into the letter, and today we're going to dive in with the beginning section. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the word? Today we're going to be reading Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to be reading out of the NASB here. And it says this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. In the hope of eternal life with which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time revealed his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus my true son in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It was for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior, rebellion, for the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, disciplined, holding firmly the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sometimes when I preach, I like to begin sermons with, I call them primer thoughts. It's just something to kind of think about, to keep in the back of your mind throughout our study of the text. And so I'm of, I'm of the age where it, it made very much sense and, and reason for me to be a big fan of skateboarding and skateboarding culture. Like I was born at a time right when the Tony Hawk games came out and he landed the 900 at the X Games and all of that. So my whole life I've been very interested in skateboarding and skateboarding culture, even if I don't skateboard myself. And one of the things that I like to do sometimes after uh, my wife and I put our, our kids to bed is I'll go on YouTube and I'll watch these mini documentaries and there's this particular documentary series where they'll chronicle like the tale of how one particular skater was trying to land one particular trick. And it's usually absolutely ridiculous and dangerous. Like for instance, one of my favorite ones is this guy who climbs up on top of a house. He gets on the roof of a house and he jumps off the roof of a house over this giant fence onto this ridiculously steep incline that leads straight into the middle of the highway. And so he has to have like all of his friends standing on the highway making sure no cars are coming and then they'll give him the thumbs up and then he'll like, it's ridiculous and it's dangerous. And you just watch him jump over and over and over and over again and he can't land it. And some of these are ridiculous. Like some guys, they'll get hurt. They'll like destroy their ACL, have to wait a year for recovery and then they'll immediately come back and try it again. And they won't stop. They'll throw their body into absolutely ridiculous amounts of danger over and over and over again until they actually complete what they set out to do in the first place. And I love watching these documentaries because I'll sit there and I'll be like, man, what a, what a testament to human perseverance, nacity. And I'm just in awe of these people because the reason I don't skate is I don't want to get hurt, right? And so I'm just in awe of these guys. Now, my wife sometimes, she'll watch these documentaries with me and she has a very very different response. Whereas I am in awe of this human tenacity and perseverance, my wife sits there and sometimes she'll say to me, this is the, the dumbest man who has ever lived. <laughs> One day we were watching it, she said, 
I am, I am getting angry at how reckless this person is. I say all of that to say this one simple point. What one person may find as honorable, another person may see as shameful. All right? Whereas I watch these videos, I, see, I, I look at these guys with, with great honor, be like, man, they, they're filled with such tenacity and perseverance. My wife thinks they're reckless and stupid. We're looking at the same exact thing, but we have two wildly different perceptions. What one person finds honorable, another may find shameful. I want you to take that thought, put it in the back of your head, and keep it there as we study this text. We're entering into the study of Paul's letter to Titus. And, and, and we've titled this series like the Foundations of the Church because what's going on here in Titus is that Paul and Titus had come to the island of Crete on a missionary journey. And they've come to spread the gospel. And as they've spread the gospel, people have received the gospel and have believed the gospel. And these believers have started to form communities. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to move on so that he can continue to share the gospel with people who haven't heard it yet. But he can't leave these new believers in a place of chaos or, or without direction or without continued teaching. And so he leaves Titus, a person he considers to be a spiritual son, on the island so that he can help these new believers establish church communities with order and continued sound teaching. And so Titus is effectively a church planter. And what you'll see is if you were to read the New Testament cover to cover, you're going to find this particular situation occur multiple times. There's this natural development of a church community in the New Testament, and it's, it's broken here into four very simple steps. People receive the gospel. People who had never heard the gospel before hear the gospel, and they receive it. And then those believers naturally form a community, right? Because that's what we do as human beings. We're communal creatures. We want to be with people, whether it's of similar interests or hobbies or beliefs. We love to form communities. And so these new believers who've received the gospel, they start to form church communities. And what Titus does, or or other places where they're planting churches, they appoint leaders so that, that leaders can establish order. And it's not just chaos. And those elders will do the continual work. It's not a one-time thing. This is a daily thing. Those elders cultivate a culture of discipleship within these church communities. This is the natural development of church communities as we see in the New Testament. People receive the gospel. They form communities. Leaders establish order. And then those leaders, the elders, cultivate a culture of discipleship that hopefully will continue through generation after generation after generation. And so we see throughout the New Testament that the Bible establishes these two positions of leadership within church communities. The first one are the elders, which we're going to be talking a lot about today because that's what Paul is talking about when he speaks to Titus. The elders are the spiritual leaders and shepherds of the church. And then there's a second role, which are the deacons, which doesn't actually really get talked about here in Titus, but if you were to go to a similar letter like 1 Timothy, you're going to find a lot of conversation about deacons. Or you can go to the story of Acts and see how the deacons get formed in the first place. While the elders are the spiritual leaders and overseers of the church, the deacons are like chief servants. They're people who are tasked with a specific mission or a specific program, something that isn't oversight of the whole church, but a specific initiative of the church. So, for instance, in Acts, when the deacons first get formed, it's to lead this food ministry to make sure that everybody has enough food. It's a specific program that they're in charge of. These are the two rules of leadership that the Bible describes. 
the word for elder that, that appears here in verse 5, it actually gets translated from the Greek word prebuteros. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, but it's, I'm going to give it my best shot. It's prebuteros. All right. And then there's a similar word that appears just called overseer. And those essentially function as synonyms. Every time you see the word elder pop up in the New Testament when it's talking about this role of church leadership, that word overseer usually gets used right after it. And that appears right here, what is it, in verse 6 or 7, where these elders have oversight. Now today, when we typically think of, of church leadership, right, it's easy for us to not use these words of elders and deacon. Oftentimes, we think of the words like pastor or minister, but those words, they don't actually get used all that often in the New Testament, surprisingly, especially the word pastor. It doesn't get used to refer to a position of church leadership. The word pastor, it actually comes from the Greek word poimen, and that simply means shepherd. The majority of the time that the word pastor gets used, it's not to refer to some position within a church community. It refers to a shepherd. Or it gets used as a verb describing what the elders are supposed to be doing. The elders in, in overseeing the church are called to shepherd church. And the word minister, that actually gets translated from the same Greek word as the word for deacon, which simply means servant. Like when Paul describes himself as a minister of the gospel of Christ, he's saying, I'm a servant of Christ. And so I say all of this because when we're thinking through the letter of Titus and we have this, this series of the foundations of the church, right, and we're thinking of kind of the, the fundamental core building blocks we, we need to kind of have all these, these words defined for us. The Bible, the New Testament, describes two positions of leadership within a church community, elders and deacons. Now, the section we read this morning, Paul is telling Titus, these are the qualifications for being an elder. These are the things you should look for as you are appointing elders in these church communities. And what are they? You can look. Look in your Bible right here, starting in verse 6. If any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one life, having children who believe, who aren't accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. The overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. He must not be self-willed, not quick-tempered. He must not be overindulging in wine. He must not be a bully. He must not be greedy for money. But instead, the elder must be hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he's able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradicted. The qualifications for elder have nothing to do with that elder's social status. It has nothing to do with that, that man's success in business. It has nothing to do with his accomplishments. The qualifications for elder over and over and over again, in this section here and in other places in the New Testament, have to do with a person's character, not his accomplishments, not his social status, but his character, his theology, and his morality. And the reason for this is because truth can never be detached from character. I can stand up here all day. I can say a million good things, but no one will care if I'm not actually living those good things out in my life, right? What we say doesn't matter unless it's actually backed up by our actions, Right? And Paul is deeply, deeply concerned about this. The whole introduction to this letter, Paul says, I have been sent to take this truth out into the world. 
right? Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. That's verse one. Look, look at that, that first verse, the knowledge of truth according to godliness. Truth is never detached from character, but is always deeply, deeply intertwined with an individual's character. So if Paul is going to be sharing the gospel of Jesus, he actually has to live out the gospel of Jesus. And if Titus is going to share the gospel of Jesus, he has to live out the gospel of Jesus. And if Titus is going to appoint elders who are going to cultivate a culture of discipleship, they have to live out the gospel of Jesus. And so this passage about the qualifications of elder, they're not actually about the elders, but rather it shines a light on the character of Jesus. When we talk about the story of Jesus and the person of Jesus, who do we see? We see a man of peace, a man of love, a man who cared for the lowly, one without sin, beyond reproach in every way. So if we are going to be a people who carry the gospel of Jesus, this knowledge of the person of Jesus, then we have to live, out, live it out in godliness. We have to imitate the man of whom we share his story. It's not enough to just speak it. It's not enough to just say it, but we have, we have to live it out. We have to live it out. And this isn't just for us as individuals, but this is especially important when it comes to establishing church communities and establishing leaders, because the qualities of those leaders are going to cultivate the culture of that community. And that culture is going to form and shape the next generation. This is what discipleship is. Discipleship is teaching someone the truth, but not just teaching them knowledge. It's showing them how to live it out. It's modeling it for them and guiding them and walking with them. These elders aren't just teachers. They're not just educators, but they're shepherds. They're supposed to guide and lead their church communities and live out the faith in everything that they do. What leaders do is not just for themselves, but it's to form a whole culture. We have a culture here at First Church. And culture is a fascinating subject to, to study. There are people who spend their entire lives just studying the idea of what a culture even is. Right? But we have a particular culture of First Church. We have a particular dress that we like to wear. We have a particular time that we show up. We have a particular liturgy. Right? When you show up on a Sunday morning, you know we're going to have a call to worship and a welcome. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to come to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to study the Word, and then we're going to sing a song again, and we're going to have our benediction and close, right? You expect that because that's just an ongoing practice of our culture. We have a culture in how we talk to each other and how we relate to one another. We have a culture in how we see each other outside of this building. We have a culture that has special events, like when we celebrate Christmas or Easter, or when we have an annual baked potato cell that the whole church gets excited about because it's such a wonderful and fantastic event of church fellowship, right? We've been doing the baked potato sale now. I was just talking to my dad. It's either, it's something like 13 or 14 years now. We've done it long enough to the point that if you've been involved with the church for some time, you actually know when it's going to happen, and you come to expect it. And if we didn't have a baked potato sale this year, I'm sure I would get a lot of people being like, hey, why aren't we doing potatoes? I'm sure some people would be upset. I'd get angry letters and phone calls about it, right? Because it's ingrained into our culture, right? Culture isn't just what we believe. It's, it's literally every single tiny little facet 
of how we live as a community together, right? And what leadership is going to do in the way that they live, not just what they say, but in how they live, is it's going to cultivate that culture. Now, understanding a culture is really, really important when it comes to studying the Bible because we have kind of this big grand culture and that we live in the United States, we live in the state of Pennsylvania, we live in the year 2024, right? We have a very particular large culture and a particular small culture within our church. But the culture that Paul and Titus lived in was a wildly different culture, right? Paul and Titus lived 2,000 years ago all the way across the world, spoke completely different languages, and lived a, a very different kind of ongoing life that would seem very strange and odd to us today. Right? In fact, Paul and Titus, they lived in an honor-shame culture. Have any of you heard that term before, like an honor-shame culture? That's not the kind of culture we live in. If you, if you study like, how cultures develop, we live in more of like a, a guilt culture. We think of life in terms of doing right and wrong in this judicial sense. If I do right, I'm not guilty. And if I do wrong, I am guilty. But the culture that Paul and Titus lived in, they, they didn't really think life through that lens of, of guilt. That wasn't the main thing they, they saw their life through. Instead, they saw life through the, this idea of honor and shame, which isn't about a moral objective truth. Honor and shame is something that, that can be relative. It, it doesn't have to be attached to morality. It can be something as simple as just the clothes you wear. That if you wear a certain clothes that's good and right and honorable, and if you wear the wrong clothes in the wrong situation, that would be seen as shameful. And the way that the people viewed honor and shame, it, it wasn't exactly like this, but it was almost, almost like, a, like a point system. Like honor is something that you can earn. Like you can do something good and you'll earn like five honor points, right? And they didn't think of it in that mathematical way, but you could do something that could earn you honor and you could also do something that could earn you shame and you could lose honor, right? And so everything you did in life you had to think through this, this idea of, is what I'm about to do, is it going to bring honor to myself, or is it going to bring shame to myself, right? But the culture that Paul and Titus lived in was not an individualistic culture. We live in an individualistic culture today, where the way that we see the world, the way that we think about our lives, is we think of ourselves as pure individuals first and foremost. The culture that Paul and Titus lived in was a communal culture, so they didn't think of themselves as this isolated individual first and foremost. They saw themselves as part of something bigger than themselves, part of a whole community. And so when they do something that earns honor or brings shame, it's not just earning honor or bringing shame to them as individuals. They're earning honor or bringing shame to their entire community, everyone that they have a relationship with, a friendship with, their family, when one person does something, it impacts the entire community. So when one person does something honorable, it brings honor to the entire community. And when one person does something shameful, it brings shame to the entire community. And individuals' actions can bring honor or shame to everyone they're around. And this is deeply important for these church communities because Paul and Titus are concerned with these church communities doing things that are honorable and not shameful. And this is especially the case for those leading the church communities. Because the way that honor and shame get weighted, it's not all the same for everyone in that community. 
the people who are seen as the leaders or who, who are seen with, with any kind of authority or who are in charge, the actions of those people are weighted far more heavily. And so if a leader does something shameful, it's going to bring great, great, great shame. Or it could bring great, great, great honor, right? And so Paul is deeply concerned with the character of these church leaders because he wants these leaders to establish an honorable culture. But it's not an honorable culture the way the rest of the world sees as honorable. Because one of the reasons why Paul describes in detail all of these different points of what kind of character the the elders should have is that Paul is defining what the church should see as honorable, what Jesus sees as honorable. The church lives under the rule of the Roman Empire at this time, and the Roman Empire had their list of things they thought were good and honorable and things that they thought were shameful, right? For instance, the Roman Empire had all these different gods, and they saw it good and honorable to essentially worship and sacrifice to as many gods as possible. They thought it would be shameful to believe in just one single God. But the way of Jesus is the complete opposite. We believe that there is only one God. And so these Christian communities are actually in in opposition to the larger culture. And so Paul is redefining what it even means to live a life of honor, to have a culture that is honorable. Not what is honorable to man, but what is honorable to Christ. And this is a life that's honorable to Christ a life that is peaceful, a life that is hospitable, a life that is calm, a life that is patient, a life that is self-controlled, a life that is righteous, that is holy, that is disciplined, a life that isn't greedy for money, but instead trusts in the faithful providence of their Lord, a character that is deeply concerned with family and cares for family, fathers who lead their families well. This is the kind of character that Paul is saying is honorable to Christ. This is the metric that should be used to judge whether Christians are living an honorable life or a shameful life. Now, the other thing about these these qualifications of leadership is that even though it comes with a different value system than the outside culture, this value system still strives to be at peace with the larger culture. Jesus did not command his disciples to go to war with the Roman Empire. In fact, that's one of the main reasons he's killed is because he wasn't starting this revolution to go to war against the Roman Empire, right? Remember Jesus in the garden when he's about to be arrested? And what does one of his best followers, Peter, do? He takes his sword and he chops a man's ear off. Now, I don't know the last time you've ever chopped an ear off, But that's not something that's easily done, right? If you want to intentionally chop a man's ear off, you got to hold that man still, and you got to be very careful and precise, right? And so when we read the story of Peter chopping a man's ear off, what should we think he was really trying to do? I don't think he was aiming for the ear. He was probably aiming for a much more important part, right? Peter is ready to go to war, tries to kill a man, chops his ear off, And what is Jesus' response? Stop. And he picks up the man's ear and he heals him. And Jesus allows himself to be arrested. Jesus is a man of peace. There are all these times when the Jewish religious leaders are trying to like trap Jesus. And one of the, the ways they would try to trap Jesus is to get him to say something bad about the Roman Empire or, or, or whatnot. 
And every time the Jewish religious leaders try to, to get Jesus in trouble with the Romans or to create some kind of conflict, Jesus, just so, so wisely, he's, he's crafty. Jesus is a pretty crafty person. He's able to just completely sidestep their questions over and over and over again so that he can maintain peace with the larger culture, right? It's, it's crazy that Jesus maintains his character, maintains his, his values while also striving to be at peace with all men, right? The value system that Paul describes is one that is simultaneously countercultural while being peaceful and honorable to the outside culture. And that's the life that we should live. That's the kind of culture we should have as a church, right? We know that the way of Jesus is not like the way of the world. We know that. But we're not called to go to war with the rest of the world. Instead, we have to see ourselves as exiles, living as, as people who are following the way of Jesus while striving to, to live quiet, simple, peaceful lives with the people outside our church communities. And this is what Paul is hoping to cultivate in these church communities on the island of Crete. Paul wants Titus to find elders who are not just going to teach what is right, but their character, their morality is going to be hand in hand with what they teach. And these elders are going to cultivate church communities that live out the gospel. But they're not going to go to war with the outside culture. Instead, they're going to be church communities filled with peace, both inside the church community and outside the church community. That's what these qualifications of elders communicate to us, is a culture of character, a culture of faithfulness, and a culture of peace. This is a calling for us, not just, not just leaders, but is a calling for every single participant in our church community. We all have a part to play in cultivating this kind of culture. We all make an active decision every day whether we're going to live these peaceful, moral lives that reflect the way of Jesus or not. We all have that part to play. We all are participants in shaping and forming our culture. We all have a decision to make as far as whether we are going to imitate Christ as we speak his truth. It's not just for leaders, it's for all of us. And we see in the person of Jesus that Jesus practiced what he preached. If we claim to be Christian, that word Christian, it just means little Christ. If we claim to be little Christ's imitators of Jesus, and Jesus practiced what he preached, then we have to do the same. We have to follow his example. The culture of a church community, the qualifications of leaders, it's, it's not about just following random people. It's about following Christ and imitating his life and modeling his character. And, and praise be to God, we can only do that because of the grace and mercy we've received from God. This is not something that you do on your own. This, it's impossible for you to do this on your own. We can only live this kind of life because we are a redeemed people who have been saved by the grace of God. And we can only live this out day after day after day by humbly submitting ourselves to the work of God's Holy Spirit who guides us and shapes us and leads us in how we interact with one another and how we interact with people outside our church community. This kind of life is a life of humility and it's a calling for all of us. Let us all strive. Let's, let us all strive to cultivate a culture here among this people that reflects the person of Jesus.
Let us strive to care for one another and love one another, to fellowship with one another. In all that we do, let us strive to create a culture that imitates the person of Christ. For we cannot afford to say one thing with our lips and do a different thing with our hands. If you would, would you please pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you. You are a good God. You have saved us. It is only by your grace and mercy that we are even here in the first place. So God, help us to daily, daily humble ourselves before you. To not see ourselves purely as individuals, but to recognize we are part of a whole church family. And help us all to live a life that longs to imitate you in all that we do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.